0: I hope you have uh, been enjoying our uh, Easter experience. It's been a gospelicious uh, experience, uh, hasn't it? Um, as we've just been thinking about the various uh, aspects of the gospel, we started on Thursday night thinking about uh, Jesus' command to love one another around the events of the Last Supper. And then yesterday we uh, had a look at Psalm 22 and considered the most famous death in history. And uh, that, that uh, psalm that was written by David about a thousand years uh, before Christ, just a remarkable psalm. Um, and today, uh, we're going to have a bit of an omelet uh, where we're not j- going to just be in one text, but going to be in a variety of texts. And so uh, hopefully, perhaps as you're enjoying your, uh, your breakfast or uh, your coffee or tea, whatever you have this morning, your protein drink, your kale smoothie, uh, that you would uh, uh, enjoy thinking about this aspect of Jesus uh, descending to the dead. We're going to ponder the, the burial of Jesus, as well as uh, the the descent of Jesus. We call this day traditionally Holy Saturday. Um, and indeed, uh, sorry, I'm getting text messages. I, gospelicious. Yes, Kent Bass. I said gospelicious. That's what this has been. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm working up here, man. Will you leave me alone? Uh, text me afterwards. Uh, We call it Holy Saturday, as I was saying, uh, and it it is a holy day of remembrance. Uh, But we could also call today Hopeful Saturday, uh, because Jesus' burial, his descent to the dead, and his resurrection gives believers uh, massive hope, massive hope. Um, And Christians, I just want to remind you, are people of hope. And hope, for a Christian, is not wishful thinking, but it is a settled confidence, As we've said before, Christian hope is not fingers crossed, but thumbs up. There is certainty. There is confidence. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 15 verse 4, These things are written that we may have hope. And there Paul's talking about the Old Testament, but we could could apply that to the entire Bible, that one of the purposes of Scripture is to give you hope. And that's one of the reasons why you should read Scripture. Uh, Night and day is because it fills us afresh with hope. Why read the Bible? Because you need hope. Holy Saturday gives hope to our loved ones who are dying. A very real, um, a very real uh, uh, concern and reality uh, in light of this COVID crisis. It gives hope to those who are afraid of dying, and it gives hope. It gives us a word to, to give to others uh, in ministry as we um, prepare people to die. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says that we could even say that the mission of the church is to share and reflect the future hope as the New Testament presents it. And that's important to remember, one of our missions, one of a one of a, a primary aspect of our mission is to give people hope. And hope today is in very short supply, isn't it? Think about this global pandemic and all the ramifications of it. People in our own church affected in one way or the other with these issues, unemployment, family breakdown, financial instability, isolation, loneliness, anxiety, fear, depression. And Christians tell the world there is hope and there's more to life than merely surviving. There's more than hedonism and power. There's more to life than ambition and entertainment. There's more to life than wealth and physical beauty. There is a whole new way to live and die that's made possible through Jesus Christ. Now the burial of Jesus is not to be overlooked, right? We talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection, okay? Uh, Paul spells it out for us in 1 Corinthians 15 as he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we read about that burial uh, in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 55. I'd like to read down to verse uh, 66. 66. <clears throat> Uh, If you were with us, uh, either live or by video uh, yesterday, looking at Psalm 22, um, just uh, if you glance back at chapter 27, you see uh, many of those uh, prophecies, those allusions to Psalm 22, uh, like Matthew 27, 35, where they divide his garments, or in Matthew 27, uh, verse 39, as they mock him, or verse 42, uh, where they say... uh, let him let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And the famous cry uh, of desperation: "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And Jesus dies. In verse 51, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And then we read in verse 55 the beginning of this burial scene. Let's read it together. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there uh, came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir... We remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Let his disciple lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud <coughs> excuse me, the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is God's word. Speak it was very weak. Thanks be to God there, Joshua. Um, I want to draw out three ideas uh, this morning, okay? Uh, number one, the fulfillment of Scripture in this burial. Number two, the descent to the dead. And number three, the implications for our lives. Okay? Number one, the fulfillment of Scripture. That fulfillment is that Jesus was buried in the grave of a rich man. Before we meet him, we meet these women. Uh, Shout out to the ladies today. You really shine during Easter. Uh, And we've got here Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These women are key witnesses to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. You see them here present. Uh, in verses 55 to 56, you also see them at verse 61, as they're sitting opposite of the tomb. And then on Sunday morning in chapter 28, verse 1, who shows up but Mary Magdalene and, and the other Mary. Mary Magdalene was devoted to Jesus. We'll talk more about her tomorrow. This other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, we don't know uh, anything about her but she's obviously as well devoted to Jesus. We do know a few things about the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She appeared earlier in Matthew's gospel as she made that famous request for her sons to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus uh, and they had to be corrected for their their misunderstanding of the Messiah that before he would ascend to a throne, he would ascend to a cross. But despite her lack of awareness of what kind of King Jesus was, she is an important figure and she remained devoted to Jesus throughout the duration of his life. These women were faithful to the end and they watched the last moments of their Lord. As I said, women really shine during these events of Easter. Praise God for godly women. Mm who love Jesus and love his people. They uh, have left us a great legacy, these women. And by the way, just a, an apologetic uh, argument for the faith, uh, these witnesses still living as um, the Gospels were, were being, um, the Gospel stories were being told and would later be written, uh, these names are dropped in, these, uh, in the Gospels as individuals you could go ask yourself um, the gospel writers are uh, referring to key witnesses of all of these events. And some three times here, these ladies are mentioned. We'll, get more, we'll, we'll address more of that tomorrow. Now we meet Joseph of Arimathea. We read in verse 57 that there was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he goes and asks uh, Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Matthew is preparing us for this triumphant resurrection that happens in Matthew 28. Uh, But before, we have this really important detail about uh, the body of Jesus where uh, it is laid. Now, there are several things that are very striking about this. As Joseph goes to Pilate, Pilate grants this request. And then Joseph takes the body and he puts, uh, puts it in his own new tomb. Now... Here's what's interesting. Um, a rock tomb was expensive. Uh, this is a rich man. That's underlined by Matthew. He wants us to know it's a rich man. And Jesus is laid in a new tomb. Um, this is important because, of course, the scriptures tell us in Isaiah 53, verse 9, uh, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Now, it was also striking because it was not permitted to bury a criminal in a family grave, and yet, Pilate is granting these things. John adds that Nicodemus was present, the same Nick at night that appeared in John 3, who was asking questions of Jesus, who appears to be a disciple of Jesus uh, here at the end. And John adds that a remarkable amount of spices were used, reminiscent of the massive amount of wine at the wedding. And these spices are symbols of honor. They're symbols of a king. Jesus is given a king's burial. It's a tomb of honor. It's a tomb that's never been used. It's near the crucifixion. All of that says that this tomb was identifiable and accessible. You could get to it and it was marked out. It was a brand new tomb of a rich man. Now, it's interesting how Isaiah says that, isn't it, in Isaiah 53, verse 9? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So which was it? Well, Jesus was assigned the grave of a wicked man. That is, he's assigned a common burial area where those other two thieves on the cross would have been thrown, a common place. But that's not what happened. He's assigned Uh, Isaiah says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. After the crucifixion here, we see that Joseph asked for the body. And it turns out that Jesus is given a rich man's tomb instead of this, this burial site for a wicked person. And what is astonishing is that Pilate would actually grant this request. God uses this to fulfill prophecy. You see God's meticulous sovereignty all over the, the, the events of Easter. Jesus is given a new tomb, though assigned a common one. It's an identifiable tomb. Therefore, Holy Saturday shows us, number one, that Jesus really died. He really died. Yesterday, we talked about how we have a sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ, who understands mockery. He understands betrayal. He understands shame. He understands torture. He understands abandonment. And we can add to that list, he understands death. You have a Savior who understands. Jesus is not unaware of suffering and death. Jesus knows all about suffering and death, not simply because he knows all things, but because he himself entered into it. Jesus has come into this broken world And he knows all of these human experiences. Therefore, whatever you're dealing with today, you can rest assured, believer, that Jesus is able to sympathize with your weakness and grant you mercy and grace in time of need. Holy Saturday also shows us, of course, that God is sovereign. We read in Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. And here he turns the heart of Pilate. Fulfilling prophecy granting this request. And Holy Saturday shows us that God keeps his word. If he says 700 plus years beforehand that the Messiah will be buried with a rich man, you can take it to the bank. His word is true. Not one word has ever failed. Well, those are some glorious thoughts on Holy Saturday. Now, number two, let's think about the descent uh, to the dead Uh, this morning. What was Jesus doing after his body was put into this grave? Now there's obviously a resting aspect, a Sabbath aspect to Holy Saturday of Jesus uh, resting in the tomb. But for centuries, there have been questions about this time in between death and resurrection. I asked one of my sons, I'm not going to mention his name, though he's present with me. Um, what do you think Jesus was doing between his death and resurrection? And he said, folding his clothes. Um, <laughs> I think he's still struck by the fact that a single guy can actually fold his clothes. Um, but I meant the time after Jesus was no longer breathing and before he, he rose from the dead. Uh, so that's the question. After Jesus died on the cross and his body was buried in this tomb, where was he? What was he doing? And this is where the Apostles' Creed has uh, the line, he descended to the grave. Or he, he, what did I say? he descended to the grave. That's kind of hard to do, isn't it? Uh, he, or he descended to the dead. Or he descended to hell. Both the Apostles' Creed and uh, the, the Athanasian Creed um, give us this descent line that's very important. Now, I would argue that hell is not an option, not at least the way we think about hell as torment. I I do not believe that Jesus experienced further torment in hell after he died. now, we have historically said at our church, as we say the creed, he descended to the grave. Though I think there was a time early on we said also he, des- he descended to the dead. But the, for the majority of our time as a church, at least we've, we've said he descended uh, to the grave. And I just want to say both are accurate, that Jesus obviously descended to the grave um, and he descended to the, to the dead. Part of the debate about Jesus descending to the dead versus Jesus descending to hell uh, it's partly a translation issue. As a New Testament scholar and friend, Mike Bird, uh, says the problem derives from a mistranslation of the Latin ad inferos, that is to the grave or to the place of the dead, or you could even say the underworld. You can hear the word inferior there. Uh, that's, that's what is, is communicated in the creed. He descended there. It's not ad infernum, meaning to hell. Um, but add in phiros, he descended to the dead, the realm of the dead, the righteous dead. Uh, Bird adds, a better English translation of the creed, which is used in the Church of England, is he descended to the dead. And I do think that dead captures more of the significance of Jesus's time between his death and resurrection uh, than descended to the grave does, um, though both, again, are certainly true. And let me explain why I think that's... Um, that's important for us to think about. And it's basically this, this idea um, that's really uncontested. There are aspects of, uh, we'll get into in just a minute, of what Jesus was doing that are debated and we must not be overly dogmatic. But, but this point is, is uncontested. Uh, Jesus's body was buried, but his soul departed to the place of the dead. And we understand this as Christians because we often communicate, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, right? That we are, we're more than a body. And so it's true Jesus' body is in the grave. It's true that he's not breathing. He's dead. He's not mostly dead, (laughs) as Princess Bride says, he's dead, Um, but he's more than a body. And that's what's communicated with Jesus descending uh, to the dead, that He descended to the place of the dead with his body being in the grave and his soul spirit to the place of the righteous dead. Now, there's a question about whether or not Jesus could communicate um, with all of the dead, that is the righteous dead, the unrighteous dead, um, and fallen angels, and so on. Matt Emerson, who has written a great book, the dean of Oklahoma Baptist University uh, and friend, says this uh, in his book called He Descended to the Dead. Christ died and experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried. His human soul went, descended to the place of the dead. He descended to the righteous compartment of the dead, paradise, but he could communicate with all the dead. In this way, he proclaims victory to those under the earth. And you remember that line, of course, from Philippians 2. Now, all of this may sound a little bit strange because it's not a, a, uh, an idea that we really talk about a lot in many circles. And it may even sound like an episode of Stranger Things uh, where, where the guy, go, Will, goes into the upside down world or something like On Lord of the Rings. But there's biblical and historical justification uh, for this view. So here really are the questions. Where did he descend to and what did he do? In that descent. And again, number one is really uncontested. Number two is debated, uh, and we, we must not be overly dogmatic about it. So where did he descend? Let's, let's try to answer that question for a moment and give some biblical text. Um, during the biblical times, the afterlife involved this intermediate state in which all the souls of the dead dwell, but these, these dwell in different compartments. Okay? The most common... Uh, place of the dead is referred to as Sheol or Hades. So that just means the realm of the dead, um, the souls of the dead. Um, but sometimes Sheol and Hades is talked about negatively, like the, where the unrighteous dead go rather than the righteous dead. Okay, so all of that can get a bit confusing. But here are the three compartments. You've got number one, the righteous dead, number two, the unrighteous dead, and number three, some kind of place for fallen angels or spirits. Now, let me give you the biblical text for those three uh, categories. The righteous dead would be passages like Luke 16, verses 19 and following, with that story of rich man and Lazarus, where uh, the, Lazarus, the believer, is in Abraham's bosom or in Abraham's side. He is in a blessed state of being in God's presence as a righteous person. The most uh, clear passage probably about this, this place for the righteous dead being in a, a state of, of blessedness is when Jesus is on the cross and he tells the believing thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So how is that? If, if Jesus is simply in a tomb, then that's not paradise but if his body is in a tomb and his soul uh, is in paradise, then uh, that statement would be true. So you've got this blessedness, this blessed righteous uh, state area for the dead. Then you have the unrighteous dead, as I said, is often referred to as Sheol or Hades, uh, but it's often uh, always when Gehenna is used, that's the place of the unrighteous dead. Then you have this, this strange place called Tartarus, uh, which you, you can find in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 22, which is a place for these fallen angels or spirits. Uh, let me just read Second Peter 2, 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and there's a footnote in the ESV that says to Taurus, that's where he cast these angels, and committed them to chains in gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So they're in prison." Uh, in some compartment of this realm of the dead. So I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but you've got this state uh, between uh, Jesus's burial and resurrection where I believe uh, Jesus uh, is is uh, in this place with the righteous dead. Now, a lot of people point to 1 Peter three eighteen to 22 as the key text for Uh, this period between death and resurrection. And I'll say something about that in just a moment. Uh, But there's actually a rich tapestry of texts uh, that speak about these compartments, these these three categories. Um, And I think the primary one is in Acts chapter two, where Acts chapter two, uh, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he quotes from Psalm 16, uh, verse 11. Uh, And as he does, this is what Peter says about uh, the body of Jesus. He says in verse 25, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. So this Hades here is a general place, just simply means the realm of the dead. And David here is saying, which is a, a, a prophecy about Jesus, you will not abandon my soul to the realm of the dead. So there's a soul, your soul will go somewhere. <laughs> and he says, you have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But that is the good news of a believer who dies. We are in the presence of God. We never, we never leave that. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. nor did his flesh see corruption. And so the the idea here is this, this text is primarily about the resurrection, but the assumption is that Jesus experienced death as all humans do, his body in the grave, and his soul in Hades or Sheol with the righteous dead. He descended to the righteous dead, that's the idea. Now there are other texts we could look at that point in this direction, they're less clear. Um, That's Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. When Paul says, uh, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And here the descent could mean he descended to earth, but I think that's a weird way to say that. It seems better, I think, to to read it as uh, descending to the lower regions, this underworld, those under the earth. Um, The same is true, I think, in Romans 10, verse 6 to 8, when Paul says, but the righteous based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is bring Christ up from the dead. Now, if all of that's confusing, I've good news for you. I have a picture, okay? And this is from my friend Matt Emerson's uh, book, He Descended to the Dead, in which you've got the, the realm of the dead and you've got three, uh, three compartments of what happens to the soul of individuals. Paradise or Abraham's bosom, the place of the righteous dead. Then you've got the place of the unrighteous dead. Sometimes it's Hades, SHIELD, Sometimes these are general, um, but often they're negative. Gehenna and then that place where I mentioned uh, this place for fallen angels um, that uh, Peter and Jude both uh, refer to. So that's the bottom line, this idea that Jesus descended to the place of the dead, his body in the grave, his soul to the place of the righteous dead. Now the question is, what did Jesus do? Um, Now a strong case can be made uh, that Jesus did more than simply experience the blessed intermediate state between death and resurrection. After all, he is the divine son of God. Um, So while he did die like all humans die, he is unique as well. Some argue rather convincingly that Jesus did three things between death and resurrection. Those three things are these. He conquered, taken the keys of death and Hades. He proclaimed victory to all those who are under the earth and he transformed paradise, that is that realm of blessed state, the righteous dead, as Old Testament believers um, saw him, as their faith uh, became sight. Um, Now, where do we get those ideas? Jesus gaining victory, number one, uh, again, we have to pull threads in the Bible to, to, to develop this. Um, Revelation 1.18 is the famous text where Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The idea that some argue here is that Jesus took the keys of death and Hades. He conquered in his death. Um, And he did that in this this cosmic battle. Um, And so it's this idea that when the Lord Jesus enters the place of the dead, the dead cannot hold him. And now as believers, we don't fear death uh, because Jesus has conquered. He obviously conquered in his resurrection, um, but it's possible that in this intermediate state, uh, there, there's some kind of battle where Jesus takes these keys. Emerson writes, one day there will be no, there, uh, we, will no we will be no more, uh, these keys will be no more when they are thrown into the lake of fire with the rest of Christ's enemies. These death, these enemies of death and Hades. So that's one idea that Jesus gains victory. Number two, this idea that Jesus proclaims victory uh, is seen in a a couple of places, but 1 Peter 3, 18 and following is uh, the primary place where uh, this is developed. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but meet but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now this is a debated passage. Uh, We're going to go through 1 Peter hopefully soon as a church. We'll get back to this. Uh, I used to make uh, students in my preaching class preach from what I considered the the hardest passages in the New Testament, and they would pull a text out of uh, the hat, and that was one of the sermons they had to preach, and this was always one of my hardest passages in the New Testament. You know it's hard when a guy like Luther says, this is a strange text, (laughs) and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. So, again, good and godly saints disagree here, uh, and it's okay to disagree on what Jesus was doing uh, in this descent, but the questions from this passage are basically three. Who are these spirits in prison? What did Christ preach, and when did Christ preach? So, who are these spirits in prison? Are they unbelievers who have died? Are they Old Testament believers who have died, or fallen angels? What did Jesus preach? Did he preach a second chance of salvation? Did he preach triumph? Did he tell of their final condemnation? And when did he preach? Did he, is this Peter saying that Jesus, by the Spirit, preached through Noah in the days of Noah? Or did Jesus preach between his death and resurrection? Or is this text talking about after his resurrection, before his ascension, he preached to the spirits in prison? Now, the who question, the spirits in prison, I think refers to that place where evil spirits dwell. Uh, One writer says, Christ proclaimed his cosmic victory over the most evil of beings and of the most notorious of sinners in Jewish thought, those in Genesis 6, 1 to 8. Tom Schreiner, the great New Testament scholar, calls this the majority view, that spirits in prison refer to these evil spirits or fallen angels. But it probably also represents all believers. Uh, as Green says, it's, it's the most notorious of sinners uh, that will then you know, include everyone else that Jesus is proclaiming to them. Now, what is it that he's proclaiming? I think we should take off the table that Jesus is proclaiming any kind of second chance after death, uh, post-mortem salvation, that would be inconsistent with all of scripture. Rather, I think Jesus is proclaiming triumph He's proclaiming victory. He's saying, I won. He's proclaiming uh, his victory. It was an announcement of his lordship, of his triumph, of his his victory at Calvary. And I think this fits well with the theme of first Peter on suffering like Jesus and being vindicated later um, as we'll get into uh, first Peter. Now, the question is, when did he do this? I don't think Noah, that, that that, uh, I don't think that's a good option. It has a number of problems. So you're really left with two options. Did Jesus proclaim to these spirits in prison, uh, these evil beings and probably all of the unrighteous dead? Did he do that after his resurrection, before his ascension? Or did he do this between his death and resurrection? Um, well, again, good people disagree about this and it, we, we cannot be overly dogmatic about it. Uh, I personally think the descent to the dead works best because... Uh, Jesus, or Peter rather, later says in verse uh, 22, he talks about the ascension. He could have easily mentioned or said that Jesus preached after his resurrection, before his ascension, and he did not. Um, So if you take this view that Jesus descended to the dead and proclaimed to those under the earth of his triumph before his resurrection, then the descent actually has an exaltation component to it. Um, It's the beginning of his exaltation. He proclaimed victory through his death, through his descent, and announced that he is Lord, and he is Lord over all who are on the earth and under the earth. As Emerson writes Jesus thus proclaims to all the inhabitants of the dead that he is Lord over those under the earth, just as he will declare himself to be Lord over those on the earth in his resurrection and over those in heaven in his ascension. Mm. <laughs> Whatever view we come down on, we say that Jesus Christ is Lord over it all, <laughs> right? That's Holy That's Holy Saturday. As uh, the songwriters at, what's a, the, the, On Friday a Thief, who's that guy? Uh, John Michael? John, John Martin? Yeah, I, mean, I wanna get, I, I didn't write it down, but he's got that, that uh, song, On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys of hell on that day First born of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. And that's good news. That's hopeful Saturday, isn't it? The third aspect that I mentioned is is not only Jesus taking the keys and Jesus proclaiming victory, but this view uh, speaks of Jesus transforming paradise. um, By virtue of his presence in the realm of the righteous dead, Old Testament saints who had been waiting for the coming of Messiah have their faith turned into sight. And now they are in the presence of the risen Christ who await their own resurrection. Um, so, in summary, Jesus descends to the place of the dead, his body in the grave, fulfilling scripture, being buried with the rich man, and his soul to the place of the righteous dead. Now, I've already went longer than I want to, but let me finish uh, with implications. And there are four of them I just want to point out. One, two, and four all relate to our union with Jesus Christ. Okay. The first is baptism. Um, It's interesting where Peter goes after he he describes what we looked at in 1 Peter 3, but we'll get there later. What I just want to emphasize here is that in baptism, we believe that we are united to Christ, the Christ who descended to the dead and rose again in triumph. Romans 6, we have been united with him in a death like his. Just as the Messiah would not be abandoned in Hades, the realm of the dead, we will never be abandoned when we die. We will not be abandoned when we die, though we're not breathing, though we're in a casket, though we're put in the ground. We still are not abandoned because we are united to Jesus Christ. We will be in the presence of the Lord. So as we've said before, remember your baptism every day. Every day, especially in moments of temptation, in moments of doubt, in moments of despair. Baptism is a declaration that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has defeated our enemies, and that we have victory over Satan, sin, and death. This fills us with hope and joy. This is our identity. Baptism is confirming that identity, proclaiming that identity. We will never be separated. Number two, second implication is the communion of saints. As you look through this, this idea, um, you see that we enjoy the communion of saints, uh, the righteous who have died, as well as believers who are on the earth. Now, we are united with all believers of all time because we are all united to Jesus. And this also is a is a glorious thought to think about as we enjoy the blessing of being in a local church. We are also part of this universal church, the church in heaven, the church on earth, all made possible because Jesus Christ is alive. The third implication I want to bring out is the urgency of mission or the necessity of belief. The descent proclamation is not you have another chance. No, uh, the gospel is you have an opportunity to believe while you live, while you're on earth. That's it. That's all you've got. And if you're not a Christian, and for some strange reason you're still with me after 38 minutes, I want to suggest you might consider that the sovereign pleasure and providence of God to be listening to this. Peter tells us that you have not perished yet because God is merciful, and he's granting you the, the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. You can believe in the one who has the keys of death in Hades. The one who is alive forevermore. You can believe on him and his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And so that's my prayer for you, that you would really believe. And church, we would take this doctrine and realize that our mission is urgent. We need to tell the good news to people all over the world. Finally, The fourth implication is hope for the dying. Here is hope. Christ experienced death the same way we will experience death, but he defeated death. We don't have to fear because Jesus has conquered death. So when our loved ones face death, we know physical death does not have the last word. We can say with them, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, or to say the way Paul says it in Philippians 1, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul's body would be put in a, in a grave, but he would be in the presence of Christ, which he said was far better, and he would await a final resurrection of his body. The good news today on Holy Saturday is that Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. We do not descend to nothingness. We are not alone until Christ returns. He is present with the saints who have died. Believers attend funerals, knowing that the body of a believer will de- decompose. But we also know that his or soul, his or her soul will remain with Christ, awaiting the day when Christ will come again and we'll reunite our bodies and souls in a glorious resurrection. We will rise from the dead with a glorified body, and we will dwell in a new heaven and new earth. This brings us comfort, especially in this historic moment of death and dying all over the world. We as Christians grieve, but as Paul says, we do not grieve without hope. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. But we have hope beyond this life. As he finishes that great chapter on the resurrection saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So rejoice, Christian. On this Saturday morning, your greatest problem has already been solved. Which is why Paul says, I believe that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You catch that? Not even death will separate you ever from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. May be to God for this hope that we have. I want us to pray together as we um, conclude our time. We have been praying and we'll pray now as well for all of our nurses and doctors who are doing uh, heroic work. We wanna pray for leaders who are making decisions. We wanna pray um, for those who are unemployed, who are looking for uh, jobs. Uh, for those who have uh, uncertainty of uh, the future of their job. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for those who are dealing with despair, anxiety, and fear during this time. We want to pray for those who are facing death. Um, And so with those things in mind and and many others, let's just go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we uh, approach you on this morning Thinking back some 2,000 years ago, in which Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished on the cross, accomplishing that glorious work of atonement, the lamb who was slain for us. And we think about how his body was put into the grave and how on the third day, he rose again and how we are united to Jesus Christ. How we, as believers, rejoice today that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. And we are united to one another. And so, Lord, our hearts um, today go out to those in our body who uh, are on, in one of these categories that I've just mentioned. And we do continue to pray for our nurses, that you would sustain them, and doctors, that you would strengthen them as they're being asked to do all sorts of things. We pray you protect them from this illness. We pray that you would use them to offer gospel hope. We thank you for their courage. We thank you for their commitment. Um, They really are heroes during this time. And we honor them and we pray you would uphold them. You would strengthen them. Pray you would strengthen their spouses if they're married as they take on more work. Help us be aware as a church how we can help and serve them and I pray we would be quick to do that. We pray for leaders all around the world who are making decisions that they would make wise decisions, kinds of decisions that would bless the common good, that we could live a peaceful, healthy life that which would be best for uh, humanity. Lead them to those kinds of decisions we pray. Pray for my friends and church members who are Dealing with unemployment, our hearts go out to those who have lost jobs. Many have lost very good jobs. Um, And this is a time of uncertainty, but it's also a time in which their faith is being strengthened. I've been certainly encouraged by their testimonies. Trusting in you, Father, for their provision. Trusting in you for what's next. I pray you you would give them an unshakable confidence in you. Pray you would keep them free of anxiety and worry knowing that you care for them and you will provide for them I do pray that you would provide father we pray for those who are dealing with anxiety and and fear for other reasons during this crisis Lord would you just settle us in your peace help us to think about the fact that you you raised Jesus from the dead he's ascended on high He reigns over all. He's Lord over everything. And because of that, we can relax. We can be at peace. I pray that the peace of Christ would rule our hearts today. I pray for those who are dealing with despair and fear. Lord, let peace rule in our hearts. Father, I pray for those who are facing death. I pray most of all that they have a relationship with you that they have come to trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. And I pray if they have, you would also give them just an incredible measure of peace that they could sing, it is well with my soul. That's how we want to die. We want to die like the Apostle Paul saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to die is to is, is far better because I get to be with Christ. I get to experience more of the presence of Christ. Lord, would you do that? Would you build up their most holy faith in these dying moments? Father, <clears throat> I pray for pastors here in RDU, in the Triangle, around our country, around the world. Sunday is a big day for evangelism. And we don't know what this... The year is going to be like. We're used to seeing new people and we're used to knowing that people who are not yet Christians are present and it gives a great opportunity to make the beautiful gospel known to them. And I pray that we would, we would have people who are not yet Christians tuned in as your word is preached tomorrow around the world. Would you bring the dead to life? Would you bring people to faith? Bring people to Jesus Christ? Use those who are proclaiming your word to do that. I pray this the rest of this day, Father, as we have the ability with our six feet of distance rules and all the social distancing it, you know that we would still find ways to be productive servants of the kingdom of God, that we would still find ways to love our neighbor, we'd still find ways to make disciples. I pray you would bless our day. May it be all to your honor and glory. And we look forward to singing tomorrow morning and celebrating the fact that he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. As we think about the glorious news that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. And we pray all this today in Jesus' marvelous name. And everybody said, Amen.